the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Well, I told you we should have had evening service last week. Well, we have been studying 1 Corinthians verse by verse, and we have come to a section in where Paul addresses the first sin, the first issue that he wants to address in the Corinthian church, and that is division. Division in the church is both dangerous and ungodly. It affects the local church not just as an organization, if you will, but there are also negative consequences on the lives of the believers, the individual members of the family. Because when there is division, the family is in disharmony. The repercussions ripple out so that the light of the city on a hill flickers and falters, hurting not only our reputation, but also the life-giving impact of our testimony. The reason I'm emphasizing this is not just because of how bad disunity is, but also because of the potential for disunity in the church, our church, today. As is easy as it is to point fingers at others, to look at what's going on, unfortunately, in many churches, even in this area today, we can be thankful for our lack of division here at Grace, but the reality is that on a personal level, level, rather, and even in your own heart, harboring certain sins against others, such as pride, selfishness, bitterness, those are the roots of division. See, Paul's not just trying to preserve a testimony. Paul's not just trying to talk about the, the shame that the church of Corinth may be bringing. He's concerned about their sin. He's concerned about each and every individual believer's relationship with God, which does affect the whole. And it is for these reasons and more that Paul's first address to the church at Corinth is his exhortation against the existing division in that local body. Follow along as I read 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 10 through 17. Verses 10 through 17, 1 Corinthians chapter 1. Now I exhort you, brethren, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you all agree and that there be no divisions among you, but that you be made complete in the same mind and in the same judgment. For I have been informed concerning you, my brethren, by Chloe's people, that there are quarrels among you. No, I mean this that each one of you is saying, I am of Paul, and I am of Apollos, and I of Cephas, and I of Christ. Has Christ been divided? Paul was not crucified for you, was he? Or were you baptized in the name of Paul? I thank God that I baptized none of you except Crispus and Gaius, so that no one would say you were baptized in my name. Now, I did baptize also the household of Stephanus. Beyond that, I do not know whether I baptized any other. For Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel, not in cleverness of speech, so that the cross of Christ would not be made void. 
Starting last week and concluding today, we've been looking at five components of division in the church. Last week, we looked at the first of these five components, and we spent all morning last Sunday just covering the first point because it's really the, the basis, the foundation of what he's going to say later in the get, as he gets into the particulars of what's happen, happening in Corinth. And just by way of review, the first component of division in the church that we looked at last week was the appeal, which is found in verse 10. And again, we saw the foundation of what is going on here, the address, the exhortation. And we were reminded last week in verse 10 that despite the Corinthian sin and their sin against Paul, Paul is graciously coming alongside them as we saw in that that word exhort. He's encouraging them as his spiritual brothers and sisters in Christ. He cares about them. He loves them. He's not holding a grudge. He's not bitter. He wants to correct them. He wants to help them. And in the name of Christ... He says, that is, on the basis of the will and the character of the Lord Jesus Christ, Paul tells them that they must have agreement on matters of doctrine and the living out of that doctrine. The result in doing that would be unity in the church. The way this is accomplished is, he goes on to say in verse 10, is through having the same mind and the same judgment, the same understanding and the same mindset, as well as the uniformity of how that understanding and mindset are lived out. And again, it's not that we are to agree on everything. Favorite color, preference of where we meet for church even, sports teams, things like that. We're talking about issues that could divide the church, issues that are foundational to the church, starting with doctrinal issues, and then how those doctrinal issues are played out in our daily living. Then having laid that foundation in verse 10, Paul now explains to the Corinthians what he's talking about exactly in their situation because Paul's heard some things. And this leads us to our second component of division in the church, the assessment. The assessment. Let me read for you again verses 11 and 12. He says, For I have been informed concerning you, my brethren, by Chloe's people, that there are quarrels among you. Now I mean this, that each one of you is saying, I am of Paul, and I am of Apollos, and I of Cephas, and I of Christ. So Paul explains that some people, we just know here as Chloe's people, have seen the division, the factions within the church in Corinth, and they have told Paul about it. The mention of her name, Chloe, indicates that Chloe is someone the Corinthian believers would be familiar with. We don't know for sure, but most likely a wealthy Asian whose business led her people to travel between Corinth and Ephesus, where Paul is writing from. We don't even know if Chloe herself is a believer. But most likely her people, her business associates, who informed Paul of the situation were believers. Regardless, just from that phrase, by Chloe's people, I've been informed concerning you by Chloe's people, there are a couple things to point out here about how Paul received this news. Firstly, Paul is addressing a concern that someone had firsthand knowledge about, and this is important. Whether they reside in Ephesus or Corinth, these individuals had seen what was going on in Corinth, in the church there, and they reported it to Paul. 
And the mention of the specific people gives credence to what Paul is addressing, what Paul is confronting, what Paul heard. In other words, this is not just rumors and hearsay. These people said, this is what is going on over there. Secondly, these people were willing to be named. There was no fear about being mentioned. There was no, hey, Paul, we know this is a problem. You probably want to address this, but don't, don't tell, it, tell them it's, it's from us. See, Chloe's people, their concern was not gossip or rumor-mongering. Their concern was the disunity in the church. And their concern was great enough that they were passing on information to someone who had authority and influence on the church there with the understanding that this meant that they would be quoted. There's a lesson here. For each of us, our concern for the church, the body of Christ, must outweigh our desire to gossip about people in the church or even to protect your reputation by saying, hey, deal with this, but you didn't hear it from me. That kind of behavior has no place in the church. Perhaps it's normal in society. Perhaps it's normal in the office, the workplace, but not in the church. Because when you truly care about the church, when this is true in your life, you don't care, you don't mind being known as the person who has voiced that concern. On the flip side, we need to live in such a way that invites correction and rebuke. That our first response isn't, who told you that? It's, yeah, I need to evaluate my life. There's something wrong there. Even if I haven't seen it, if someone else thinks it's true, perhaps it's time to take a long, hard look in the mirror with the Bible in my hand. We must have humility, love, and selflessness both in addressing issues and receiving the address. Seeing God's glory in our lives beyond all else, including our egos. The third thing I want to point out, which perhaps there's a lesson for here, for us here as well, is unfortunately, Paul had to hear this from outsiders. No one in the Corinthian church realize, hey, this is a problem. We need to get Paul to address us. We need to get Paul to fix this. So true, though, right? People who are involved in the sin, especially when it's a sin related to pride, they are the last to want to correct the sin. Rather, they like feeding the sin. But what is it that Paul was informed about by Chloe's people? He says right here, there are quarrels among you. Literally, the word quarrel is strife contentions, wrangling. These are the hot disputes, the arguments and emotional flames that blow up when rivalry becomes unbearable. It's a big problem. Remember, this is a church. This isn't a sports club. This isn't an office. This isn't politics. This is a church. And we're again reminded that division is not just caused by a casual disagreement. That's not how it happens. It's when there is genuine contention and fighting. But be aware, my friends, this kind of heated quarreling can start with casual disagreements, 
that blow up because egos and pride is hurt. You have to understand that the English in our Bibles may be a little misleading because we don't tend to use the word quarrel. But in the Scriptures, quarreling is a grave sin. And I know this because Paul mentions this same word, this same sin, in many of his lists of vices in other epistles. For example, in Romans 1, in describing the wickedness and the depravity of the unbelieving world, he says, in part, in verse 29, they are being filled with all unrighteousness, wickedness, greed, evil, full of envy, murder, and what comes after murder? Strife. That's the same Greek word we have in 1 Corinthians for quarrel. Later in chapter 13 of Romans, he warns the Roman Christians against that same sin, same word, quarreling. Quarreling is listed as one of the deeds of the flesh as opposed to the fruit of the Spirit in Galatians chapter 5. You know the passage well. It's, it's listed, quarreling, fighting, arguing is listed right there with things like idolatry and sorcery and immorality and drunkenness, to name but a few. And then when he writes to Timothy in 1 Timothy 6.4, strife or quarrel, same word, is listed as one of the outcomes of the efforts of a false teacher. For the Corinthians, the quarrels involved what's described in verse 12. People are saying, I am of Paul, I am of Apollos, I of Cephas, and I of Christ. If you recall from last week, We unpack the words agree and division, and they both at the time had political overtones or at least were a familiar term used often in politics of the day. That's quite fitting because what is described in verse 12 also could be said to have political nuances or is borrowing themes from the political world because back then, Political parties of the ancient world were named after specific individuals. So, for example, today it wouldn't be, I'm a Republican or I'm a Democrat. It would be, I am of Trump or I am of Pelosi. You can see then, if this was the way things were in society at large, why this is happening in the church. Christians, all in the same church, were associating themselves with different parties that had to do with different church leaders of the time. Well, who are these church leaders? Paul, you know. Cephas, you know, but probably uh, by his Greek name, Peter. And, of course, you know Christ. Apollos is probably the most unknown. He's someone who came to Corinth after Paul did. We're told in Acts 18 that he was powerful and bold uh, in his teaching. He was well-versed in the Scriptures, he was sent to Corinth by Paul to be their second pastor. And we don't know exactly how these factions or these allegiances played out. Uh, there's a lot of assumptions, there's a lot of guesses, but we're not told exactly what this looked like, just that there are quarrels and this is the type of thing that they're saying. Some, are, some would argue, uh, theologians would argue, that there probably wasn't actual parties like, like this groups of people that were a defined party, but it was more just informal groups of individuals using these church leaders to feed their egos and their love for disputes. 
ultimately. This just sounds like factions based on their favorite pastor with those saying, I of Christ, perhaps thinking they had a special claim on Christ or just trying to rise above everyone else who was boasting about a mere man. All the while, these people who are saying, I am of Christ, were falling into their own form of spiritual elitism and adding fuel to the fire. Knowing that all of these leaders agreed theologically, it becomes clear that what's happening in Corinth is not factions on theological issues. It's also important to note that none of the men whom these parties revolved around actually lent any support to these parties or encouraged this kind of thing, which, despite the discouraging situation in Corinth, is refreshing because both in today's politics and divided churches, it is the leaders, the pastors who promote, encourage, and feed off of this kind of thing. But Paul, Apollos, Cephas, and Christ all seek the same thing, which is the glory of the Father and submission to His will. So we know that this didn't come about because Paul said, hey, don't listen to Peter, I'm better. You need to follow me. None of that was happening. In fact, we could see uh, Paul's shock at what is happening here. He's confronting this. He's not feeding it. And so that's the assessment. That's what's going on here. This is what he's confronting. Let's move to the third component of division in the church, which is the absurdity. The absurdity. Has Christ been divided? Verse 13. Paul was not crucified for you, was he? Or were you baptized in the name of Paul? To emphasize the absurdity, how ridiculous this situation is, as well as to clarify the inappropriateness of what's happening, Paul reminds them of the centrality of Christ by asking three rhetorical questions. The first is has Christ been divided? We are all in Christ, and that's it. There's no subdivisions after that. So, has Christ been divided into different political parties? Has his body been drawn and quartered like some sort of medieval torture so that the church has no, ch- no choice but to live as a divided house? Of course not. The, the picture of the church being the body of Christ as a universal church and played out in the local church, which I want to remind you is the specific address here. Right? There are other places in Scripture where Paul addresses the universal church. Here he is addressing particularly a local church, and so the lesson is for local churches. We are not split into pieces. And so that picture of the human body there's a particular reason that picture is given in various passages. But the nuances and the overtones are so clear. If a body is divided, it simply doesn't function. It's not like Legos where you could take it apart and then build something separately. You can't chop off an arm and that arm survives and does its own thing. It is done. And so he says, has the body of Christ been divided? Of course not. That makes no sense. 
It can't exist like this. In fact, the Christian church being divided is a contradiction. We are not a corporation with its different department. There's engineering. Oh, do you know him? You work at the same company. Oh, no, he's IT. We're totally separate. We're not even in the same building. There's legal. There's human resources. That's not what we are. We are all one. Different functions, different roles, absolutely. But we are all one body. And then to point out their folly even more, Paul brings the crucifixion front and center. It's almost a, it's almost a jarring, almost a disgusting picture. Paul was not crucified for you, was he? You can only imagine that he uses this as shock value, but also to remind them of the centrality of the cross. And the question shows, beyond a shadow of a doubt, the utter ridiculousness, absurdity, and sinfulness of dividing the church, and what's more, doing so by putting human leaders on the same level as Jesus Christ. We know religions that do that. You have dozens of individuals you can pray to. Dozens of people that you can worship outside of the triune God. I once saw a documentary. I'm having trouble even telling you this. That there is even a Catholic church somewhere in the Philippines where the famous cross in front of the church has the Virgin Mary nailed to the cross. And how utterly gross and disgusting that is, that's what Paul is trying to point out here. Was I crucified for you? Obviously the answer is no. And then finally he says, have I been baptized or have you been baptized into my name? This would mean to, I mean, just think about what baptism is, right? It's a public declaration that you have denied yourself and turned to the one whose name you are baptized, Father, Son, Holy Spirit. He says, have you been baptized so that you repented from your old way of life and turned to me, the Apostle Paul? No. No. Now, frankly, I doubt any of them would go so far as to claim that, and especially the crucifixion. But what Paul is doing is using baptism and the crucifixion to show them how foolish their behavior is because whether they recognize it or not, the Corinthians, by swearing some sort of allegiance, spiritually speaking, to a man in this way is like claiming them as a mode of salvation and the proclamation of their faith. It's not I proclaim Jesus Christ, it's I proclaim Paul. It's not my Savior is Jesus Christ, it's my Savior is Peter. It's just completely twisted. And I appreciate this. I I think sometimes in counseling or or even in, in a casual, you know, iron sharpening iron in the church we have conversations and you're trying to address an issue and to, to kind of drive home the point, you maybe exaggerate or blow it out of proportion to the degree that the person you're trying to confront or to help is saying, nah, 
That's not even close. It, it was just one little argument uh, with, with my wife. This isn't, I didn't hit her. I did, it's nothing like what you're saying. But there are times where it is helpful because it helps us to see that sin is sin. It helps us to see the grossness of sin, no matter how little, no matter how big, and the ramifications of it. And sometimes we need this kind of comparison to shock us, to remind us of how vile our behavior is. Because this kind of thing doesn't happen overnight, right? It's not just total unity, everyone singing together, everyone fellowship, and then for some reason the next day they get together and they're fighting. It builds up again probably from one small sin, This is an issue ultimately of pride, and and we understand pride elicits pride. It's one of those those unique sins that when you struggle with the sin openly, it can cause other people to have the same sin, right? If you struggle with lust after another individual, that doesn't make them attracted to you, right? If you hate someone, that doesn't automatically make them hate you. If you're angry at someone, you understand it. But pride, you've seen it. You've been in a conversation. Oh, man, I did this and this, and I did this, and oh, well, I did this. Oh, well, yeah, but I did this, right? It, it just It's just that, that poking. And this is, I'd imagine, what is happening here. And it's these small little things, and they, they build up, and they build up. And before it explodes, I mean, it's already really bad, I mean, do you understand how bad it is that to confront this, the confrontation of this sin is now the Word of God? It's Scripture. That's pretty serious. And so, to make sure it doesn't get worse, he brings this comparison. Do you understand what you're doing here? Yes, it's in Christ. Yes, it's in the church. But you're just one small step away from what all these other people are doing in worshiping Mars and Zeus and whatnot. It's idolatry. And that brings us to the fourth component of division in the church, the alleviation. And this is very particular to their situation, verses 14 through 16. Let me read that for you again. He says, I thank God that I baptized none of you except Crispus and Gaius, so that none of you would say you were baptized in my name. Now I did baptize also the household of Stephanus. Beyond that, I do not know whether I baptized any other. So now Paul voices his gratitude, his thankfulness to the Lord that his actions while he was in Corinth weren't enough to feed this type of behavior. He says, there's only a few people that that I remember baptizing when I was with you. And what he's pointing out is that if he had baptized a lot of them, most of them, the Corinthians, that would give them all the more reason to claim some sort of superiority or allegiance to him in this party of Paul because, hey, I'm better better than you because the apostle Paul baptized me. Who baptized you? And it's not that the believers weren't baptized. We can safely assume that all the believers in that church were baptized. It's just that they couldn't brag or claim superiority because they were baptized by the Apostle Paul. This kind of reminds me of my time with, my, with students in my ministry at UCLA. They either would delay 
by adding one class the following year or speed up, cram up their last, cram in more classes in their last quarter so that they could graduate while Arnold Schwarzenegger was governor so that his name, his signature, his autograph would be on their university diploma. But here's the thing. Even if they had graduated before or after his term, they still graduated. It's not any less of a graduation. They passed their classes, and more importantly to UCLA, they paid their bills, and so they graduated. They walked. They're done. They get a diploma. It just didn't have a famous name on it. And it's the same thing. If you're baptized, you're baptized. As a believer, if you have believer's baptism, it is baptism. It counts regardless of who did it. Now, Paul did baptize a few people, which he names here, and for the sake of being thorough. Crispus was the ruler of the synagogue in Corinth before his conversion. You can read about him in Acts 18. Gaius is probably the Gaius mentioned in Romans 16.23. He's named as the host of the church, most likely a, a wealthier individual than the average person or even the average Christian since he had a house large enough to accommodate the church. Then we jump to verse 16 in 1 Corinthians 1. He says he also baptized the household of Stephanus. This is one of the first believers in Achaia and someone who had actually visited him, uh, which we'll read about at the, uh, towards the end of 1 Corinthians in chapter 16. Other than that, he says he doesn't remember who else he had baptized. Now, this is natural. as It's been a while since he's been in Corinth, and Paul has been busy, <laughs> to say the least. On a side, unrelated note, that verse may strike you as odd, but it totally fits in with what the Bible teaches and what we teach about the inspiration and inerrancy of Scripture. It's not that the Holy Spirit came down and all of a sudden they became zombies. And so the grammar and the, the, the way they, they spoke and their experiences were all identical throughout the Scriptures. No, he still used their personalities and their own lives and thinking. And so even the fact that Paul says there may be others, but I can't remember, does, in no way does that violate the inerrancy of Scripture. It still works, and in fact, it just shows us the beauty of what God the Father did through the Spirit and these human writers. But back to our text. All of this is brought up, so as verse 15 says, nobody would claim that they were baptized in Paul's name and brag about it. Again, to be baptized in Paul's name would place the mediatorial saving power in Paul rather than in Christ. And you can imagine the temptation to even greater pride and dissension in the church from anyone claiming the party of Paul had he actually been baptized by Paul. That would have been horrible. Paul wasn't downplaying the importance of baptism, understand. He's just downplaying the importance of the person who performs the baptism. On a larger scale, Paul is emphasizing that he's not trying to win converts to himself. 
So he's thankful to God that in God's sovereignty, he did not have Paul baptize any others because he can only imagine how much worse these factions would be if that had happened. And that leads us to our fifth and final component of division in the church. We've seen the appeal last week, this morning the assessment, the absurdity, the alleviation, and finally the assignment in verse 17, the assignment. He writes, For Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel, not in cleverness of speech, so that the cross of Christ would not be made void. Again, he's not saying baptism is not important. He's not saying it's not commanded. We know very well that he understands and recognizes the importance of baptism in obeying the Lord. He's simply emphasizing that his role, as dictated by his apostleship and his specific calling, is a preacher. And that's what Christ sent him to do. But I appreciate that he elaborates on how he preaches the gospel. He says here, not in cleverness of speech. The ESV says, not in eloquent wisdom. That phrase means sophisticated speech. It's rhetoric. It's... It's a word, it's a type of speaking that's connected to winning arguments or impressing an audience with your public speaking abilities rather than the actual content of what's being said. In other words, he wasn't trying to win or even impress people with his oratory skills because this would distract from the focus on the cross. This actually sets us up for our next passage that will start in a couple weeks that emphasizes the difference between human wisdom and God's wisdom. But it's, when Paul says this here, it's more than just a matter of personal humility, not wanting to be the center of attention in his evangelism. That's part of it, but that's not all of it. He goes on to say that the cross of Christ would be made void were he to preach in cleverness of speech. That's a pretty bold claim. How so? How does rhetoric, how does, how does focusing on impressing people with your speaking eloquence make void the cross of Christ? Well, I want to give you three ways, and this is not a complete list, but it kind of gets you thinking, I hope, in the right direction of the danger of overemphasizing rhetoric. Now, I want, to, want you to understand that if you are gifted in evangelism, if you share the gospel with people, or, or if you're preaching a sermon or teaching a, a Bible study lesson, and people come up to you and go, you're really gifted in speaking. Uh, I've had that passage, or I've had the gospel preached to me many times before, and, and you've just made it clear, I finally understand it. That doesn't mean you look at this passage and say, oh, I need to dumb it down and just mess up my grammar and things like that. You're gifted. Use that for the Lord. What he is talking about here is focusing only on that. What he is talking about here is what we can see on the Christian TV station all the time where the content is not just bad, the content is damning, but man, are they really good in public speaking. And thus they are filling stadiums. But here are three ways that focusing 
an oration can make void the cross of Christ. The first is, is probably the most obvious is you re- replace the power of the cross with human oratory persuasion. You're trying to persuade people with how well you speak rather than understanding that you can just bumble and fumble your way and get through the gospel and that's what's going to save them. It's replacing your conceived, wrongly conceived ability to convince someone rather than saying it's the power of the cross and it's the work of God. There's nothing I can do outside of presenting the gospel. Secondly, and it's, it's, I think it's less so in our society today, but especially at that time in that place, a sophisticated speech was deeply connected. It was tied to a value system that prized education and social power. So in other words, the preaching of the gospel in this way, a focus on that, was really limited to a certain type of elite social class in that day. What you need to understand is the cross is for everyone. I can't believe I just said that. You do understand that the cross is for everyone. It's not just the well-educated and the powerful people of the world. It's not just the people who speak eloquently that can understand the gospel or have the privilege of sharing it. The focus on man's eloquence appeals to and elevates a certain type within society. And this dampens the power of the cross, which cuts through all human distinctions, whether race, class, gender, status, or education. Thirdly, clever speech, again, when done inappropriately, when focused on, is superficial. It's superficial. It appeals to the emotions without cutting to the heart of man as the cross only can and does. If you are very good and eloquent, and you've heard people like that, who just the way they speak, you are just drawn to them, regardless of their content. You've done this with songs. Maybe not you. You've seen this in churches and even in secular music. If there's a certain type of slow, perhaps orchestral music added to that pop song, people will get more emotional even though the lyrics say absolutely nothing than they do, for example, with the hymns we just sung because they're very kind of stoic and frankly old. But the lyrics are so rich and powerful. If you are a good speaker, even with bad content, because of the superficiality of it, you will get results in terms of followers. You may even have professions of commitment, though not genuine, obviously, if you haven't preached the cross. You will get man's praise. Perhaps you'll even get famous. Perhaps you'll even be able to afford one or two private jets to fly you from your sermon to sermon. But what you won't get is true conversion. What you won't get is people turning to Christ. See, this is still true today, and it's very dangerous. 
When you look at the history uh, culturally in America, a few decades ago there was a shift in our culture so that we have a tendency to follow those who are fun and outgoing rather than those who are wise and moral. It's why in our society, actors and athletes are considered role models simply because they are famous, regardless of how many affairs or divorces or girlfriends or drug addiction, right? And, and, and they do something and the parents rise up, you're a, you're a role model, how could you do this? Why am I a role model? Because I play football on TV? Why did you made me a role model? Why did you make me a role model? You're really telling me that in my brain and on my tongue, Pepsi is automatically going to taste better than Coke because Britney Spears drinks it? It's supposed to be the drink of my generation. We've done this, right? It's, it's absurd because we don't want to see a tongue scientist up there. Well, you know, Pepsi, right? It's ridiculous. It's boring, right? You paid $5 million for a 30-second spot at the Super Bowl for this? No. But we follow those that are popular, that are fun. This is true in the church too. We want to hang out with the fun, the outgoing, the people, outgoing people. We don't see if they're wise or, or they're prayer warriors or they're moral. We just like the fun and outgoing people, especially in a conservative church like this because everyone else is just, oh, it's time about Bible, oh, the Bible study, are you going to men's group? Are you gonna? Ooh, but that guy, he's really fun. I want to hang out with them. We have to listen to what people are saying. We have to listen to what you are saying. Are you trying to be eloquent and impressive? Or are you just trying to preach the gospel? We struggle. Many of us struggle with evangelism. You want to know why Paul had such an effective evangelistic ministry? Because he wasn't worried about what to say or how to impress. He wasn't afraid that people wouldn't like him. He wasn't afraid that he wouldn't have all the answers. He just preached the gospel. And here he is saying, in fact, if I think that I can only be an effective apostle, an effective evangelist if I'm very eloquent, I'm actually not just focusing on the wrong thing. I will make void the cross of Christ. We get so worked up about this. What am I going to say? I'm not sure if I'll say it right. I don't know if they'll understand. Let's preach the gospel. How did Paul have such an effective evangelistic ministry? He just preached the gospel. How can you have an effective evangelistic ministry? Just preach the gospel. But they're asking me about homosexuality. They're asking me about 9-11. They're asking me just preach the gospel. They will not understand. They will not accept. They will not like your answer anyway unless they have the Holy Spirit. How do they get the Holy Spirit? Your only part of it is preach the gospel. And this is in our next passage. This is all that Paul's going to talk about. The wisdom of man versus the wisdom of God, which is foolishness to man. And this brings us full circle to what will ultimately end division in the church, the centrality of the cross. Don't worry about your reputation. And you can see this less. You could see this, right? It seems like he's kind of 
turning the corner. And this verse 17 is kind of a transitional statement into the next passage. But if you're reading this, right, and so you're, you're in the church of Corinth and someone is reading this to you and you're feeling guilty because just that morning you were bragging about being, you know, of Cephas or whatever it is. And he's like, this is, what, have I, you know, was Peter crucified for you? You dividing the church? Is the body torn apart? Right? And then he goes, as an apostle, he says, I don't even worry about being eloquent in preaching the gospel. Oh, because their focus is just on self. Which of those four, Paul, Peter, Apollos, or Christ, would just make me the most popular, seem the most spiritual? It's about, about me, how much better I am than everyone else, because that's ultimately what division is about. And then here's the Apostle Paul, their pastor, the founder of the church, and many other churches. The most, one of the most influential people in the church in that day and still today, saying, eh, I don't even worry about how I sound. <laughs> it's just a twisting of the knife. But again, it's all about unity. How? Not forcing you to like that person's dress or their new hairstyle or whatever it is. It's the centrality of the cross. It's not about hiding because you're a Chiefs fan. It's the centrality of the cross. That's it. That's it. So five components of division in the church, the appeal, the assessment, the absurdity, the alleviation, and the assignment. All of this, most of this is very particular to the church of Corinth 2,000 years ago, and we probably cannot relate. I really don't want to say this, but I'm going to. I know some people are thinking, yeah, but what about those people who are big fans of MacArthur or Sproul or Piper? Not even close to what's going on here. Not even close. So don't take that and bring that into this kind of thing. But ultimately, even in the particulars of what's going on, we can learn from their negative example and pursue Christ-likeness, part of which is unity within the local body. Now I exhort you, brethren, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you all agree and that there be no divisions among you, but that you be made complete in the same mind and in the same judgment. For I have been informed concerning you, my brethren, by Chloe's people, that there are quarrels among you. Now I mean this, that each one of you is saying, I am of Paul, and I have Apollos, and I have Cephas, and I have Christ. Has Christ been divided? Paul was not crucified for you, was he? Or were you baptized in the name of Paul? I thank God that I baptized none of you except Crispus and Gaius, so that no one would say you were baptized in my name. Now I did baptize also the household of Stephanus. Beyond that, I do not know whether I baptized any other. For Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel, not in cleverness of speech, so that the cross of Christ would not be made void. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, as much as we know it probably grieved you to see one of the early churches have such division in such a wicked way, we're thankful that in your sovereignty you raised up Paul, you raised up Chloe's people who had the, the bravery, the audacity, and the heart for you to bring this issue up. I pray that we would have people like that in our church. 
who recognize the potential for division and address it not because we fear division, but address it because we love you. We want to be your pure bride. We want to be your unified bride. We want to be the body of Christ as you mean it to be, as you died for it to be. Help us to recognize this. Help us to uh, swallow our pride in receiving confrontation, in giving confrontation. May above all else our desire be your glory and on a practical level in the church, the unity of the church and each and every one of us, our relationship with you. Help us to be a church that encourages that. And Lord, we thank you so much for the visitors who are here, whatever church they belong to, whatever circle of Christian friends that is their body. I pray that they would do the same. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.